0: Good morning, welcome to church. My name is Rowan, one of the pastors here. If you're going to leave your Bibles open at that passage, and you've got an outline there that might help you as we work through this section of God's Word and see really what is some of the heart of what we're all about as Christians. Uh, so I'm excited. Why don't we pray together as we, um, as we come to this part of God's Word. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you so much that as we gather here together today... Uh, almost as far away as possible from these places where these events went on, we can still know you and know your Son, Jesus. We ask that by your Spirit, as we look at your Word now, that you'd help us to see with clarity the way you see the world, the way Paul sees the world. And that would make real change in us, encouraging us and sending us out. Speak by your Spirit, we ask, Lord. Amen. It was December 2011 uh, that we left Australia as a family of five and a half people. Amy was half a person, not quite out, full person, but you know, not out in the world yet. Uh, We left the airport in Sydney, and I remember packing up all of our stuff. A shipping container had already been sent, and we had our suitcases with us. We're kind of pulling them along behind us, Um, and I remember vividly uh, that moment we left Australia for New Zealand. looking back towards my mum as we walked down towards customs, as we were about to kind of leave the country. And the, the, the tears streaming down her face and me thinking, oh, have we done the right thing? You know, here I was, um, her only child, taking away her only grandchildren to another country. Um, now, they were excited about the, the gospel hopes of seeing new people come to know Jesus. But I just remember that, that goodbye... And knowing that our relationship would never be the same because of distance, that we'd be in a different country and the pain that that brought her and us. Goodbyes are hard, aren't they? We experience them all the time and, and to differing amounts of emotional toil and pain. Uh, sometimes there's goodbyes as the kids leave the house, it's like a, whew, finally they're gone, you know? Uh, other times, that's kind of like, oh, wh- how will they be? I remember the first time our, our girls walked to school on their own. And you're like, okay, bye, they're like, bye, bye, you know, down the driveway, bye, dad, love you. You're know, like, man, this goodbye's going on forever. But you start to wonder, have I done enough? Have I prepped them for this walk to school? Will they get here safely? Have I said, be careful of crossing roads enough? Did, did I help them? Is it too early? And all these things go over our minds as we think about goodbyes and leaving people, and people leaving, and leaving them a legacy as we get to Acts 20, the Apostle Paul takes a moment to say goodbye. You heard it, as Mana read the passage together. He's saying goodbye to these people that have become Christians, that have left behind their idols and come to recognize the true and living God in the city of Ephesus. And he takes a moment in this passage to, to say goodbye, and Luke records it for us because we get at the center of this passage, really some of the heart of Christianity. He calls the elders of the churches in Ephesus um, to Miletus, where Paul was about to set sail from for the last time. He's convinced he needs to get back to Jerusalem and then to Rome, and he knows it's going to be hard, he knows it's going to be tough, he knows he's probably going to be suffering the whole way through, and he wants to ensure he's said enough, he's prepped them enough to these new Christians that he'd been amongst for the last three and a half years. All of us want to leave a legacy, don't we? We want to make a difference with what we have in this world and the time that we have and the relationships that we have. Paul had spent three and a half years with these church leaders and the people in these church and churches across Ephesus, time discussing the Word of God, weeping together, walking together. He spent three and a half years with them, right? That's more than an undergraduate degree, unless you're doing arts, at which point you probably have to come back and repeat some things and then go and do another degree later because you've got to get a job at some point, you know. Hey, hey, I have an arts degree, so I'm, I'm with you. I'm only talking about myself. Three and a half years is a long time. It was important to see, for Paul, friendships matter. Everywhere he goes, he's surrounded by friends. You see that throughout the book of Acts. Acts. He walks with friends, he, he laughs with joy, he cries with anguish, he, he wrestles with ideas, they pray together. Have a read through the book of Acts, just with a bit of a view to, Paul, or at least Paul's, Paul's journeys, to relationship. And watch how much friendships matter to him. To need and want deep friendships is not a sign of immaturity, but of Christian maturity. God's called us to one another, to walk alongside one another. It's not a sign of weakness, it's a sign of health. Relationships matter. And guys, especially, we need to hear this. I think the ladies amongst us get that. But guys, we're just a bit slow. We know the phrase, no man's an island, and we think it applies to everyone else except us. Everyone else is not an island. I am. I can do this. I don't need anyone else to chat through things with. We need one another. Paul needed others, and he was there with them, sharing his life with them, laughing with them, crying with them, opening the Scriptures with them. Guys, ladies, this needs to be part of our lives as Christians with others, sharing our lives together. What you also see here is that what makes a friend for Paul isn't kind of coming to someone and asking them, oh will you be my friend, will you be my friend, that kind of primary school idea. It's not kneeling before someone else and asking them to be your friend, but kneeling before the God of the universe, dependent on Him, living together for Him, having that common purpose of seeing the news of Jesus going out, being captivated by the same God, And seeing yourself through his eyes, that's what makes deep friendship. One of the greatest joys of life is sharing it with good friends. Paul in Philippians says, I have you in my heart, as he writes to the friends there, I remember you with great joy. And that's what makes this goodbye here so hard. But as Paul says goodbye to these leaders, he says goodbye for good until Jesus returns. As he goes, he won't be totally alone. A few will go with him. But in this section, Luke records something that for Paul was more important than these friendships staying together at this time. It was greater than the great good of friends. Now, we say goodbye to friends often, uh, for many reasons today. Uh, we, we, We get a new job in a new city we think about, oh, I want to move for a better lifestyle. It'll be better. I'll move further away and get a bigger house, a bigger block, a better opportunity. As some exciting change or business opportunity comes up and we move the next step on, on whatever ladder we've chosen to climb. And there are so many that we choose, aren't there? But for Paul, he says goodbye, not to go to something more comfortable, something kind of better in a worldly sense. He says goodbye to go to suffering, not to a better life but literally to die. Look at verse 22. And now I'm on my way to Jerusalem, compelled by the Spirit, not knowing what I'll encounter there, except that in every town, the Holy Spirit warns me that chains and afflictions are waiting for me. But I consider my life of no value to myself. My purpose is to finish my course and the ministry I received from the Lord Jesus. If we're honest, so much of our lives are spent Chasing after comforts, living for leisure, uh, relishing relationship, which are all good things. There's nothing wrong about them in and of themselves, leisure and comfort and relationships, The gifts from God to be enjoyed. But Paul has, a, Paul has a glimpse of something bigger. There's something that for him is so captivating. It eclipses the pull of everything else that competes for his attention in life. It eclipses the value even of his own life. That he can, through tears and through mourning and crying, leave these people behind to go on to what will be death and suffering. So come and have a look at the task that captivated Paul. What is it? What task was it that so much it grabbed his attention that he considered his life of no value to himself? Chapter 20, verse 24, Paul says this, "'I consider my life of no value to myself. "'My purpose is to finish my course.'" And the ministry I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of God's grace. Paul says, I'm leaving all this good stuff that God has given me behind to testify to the gospel of God's grace. That is his reason for being. That's what's changed his life. He has so clearly seen who Jesus is and what he's done that it changed everything for him. Look at verse 20. You know that I did not avoid proclaiming to you anything that was profitable, or from teaching you publicly and from house to house. I testified to both Jews and Greeks about repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus. Paul was so captured by by Jesus, by who he is and what he did, that he went house to house. He proclaimed it to, to everyone who listened. He was always speaking and pointing people. Do you see the value of Jesus? It changes the way you view the world. Have you ever been so captured by something? You just can't shut up about it. You're kind of so excited about it. It might have been a new car or a holiday place you've been to. You get this with Apple users, right? Have you ever come across an Apple user? It's like, oh, everything they say. And look, I I, I realize I'm an Apple user. and This could be me. Many of you might be going, it's you, Rowan. But look, once they start using an Apple Macintosh, they just don't stop, generally. They're just so excited about it. They've got to tell everyone, oh, look, you're in an inferior way of being. You know, you actually need to come and recognize what what this new joy is. And they keep speaking of it at every opportunity. Uh, Recently, there was one of our staff team. I'm not going to name names. uh, One of our staff team was looking at um, getting a new computer because their old one had died. Uh, Their old one was an Apple. And they were moving across, can you believe it, to Adele. No, not the singer. But the computer. And I'm like, what? How can you do this? Because I'm like, why would you move to this thing that you've got to keep restarting all the time? And like, I don't know what a restart is. I just open it and it works. Like, that's the joy of Apple. And so I kind of, for a few weeks, I, every time they'd go and get a power cord to plug it in, I'd be like, oh, I'm st- don't really need it. <laughs> Still not plugged in. And I keep reminding them of how great this was. Seriously, there are times i have to hold myself back at lunch, we're chatting and something would come up and i like, oh, I should remind them that Apple are way better, because they are, and, and I really want them to experience the joy and not have the headache of having a PC. Now, I didn't say to them, you need to get a Mac to stay on, stay on staff. I thought about it, but I didn't say it. <laughs> I didn't say it, so it's Okay. But whether it's a computer, a holiday destination, a movie with a great plot line, or even a new child, there are so many things that we get captured by and want to show the world to, don't we? We want to show it off and point people to it so much that we just keep speaking and speaking and speaking about it. For Paul, this is Jesus. It's what captured his life. He can't help but to say if you've not seen who he is and what he's done, he doesn't even value his life as valuable anymore. He's like, compared to seeing how great it is to point people to him. It's interesting to note here in the early church, what what did Paul actually do? Well, it was comprised of public teaching, kind of like this, and then going house to house, almost like they had connect groups, right? Genius. Who would have thought of that? Uh, The idea is that they were having the Word of God opened and explained, and then sharing together, sharing in life, talking through what is going on and how they can keep putting Jesus at the centre of their lives. That is the task that captivated Paul. That was the news that he was proclaiming. Now, granted, he was especially chosen by God to be an apostle to the, the non-Jewish world. Um, he, as a Jew in the, in the first century, was uniquely placed to do that in a way that we are not today. But the news that Paul was captivated by is the same news that has captured so many of us and the same gospel that we gather around. It is no different. It is exactly the same. So why would Paul go to such lengths to share this news with others? To, to kind of suffer and, and to willingly go towards what the Spirit has prompted him to say will be death and suffering. Why would he do it? What is the reason? What's the reason? It's point number three. Well, the reason Paul went to such lengths, the reason he would count his life as no value to himself, the reason he would leave these good and godly relationships to pour out his life, was that he got a glimpse of the incredible cost of what had been done for him. The first time as I read this passage, I kind of missed something small in verse 28, but actually ends up being the center of what we're looking at. In verse 28, Paul's giving a warning to the Ephesian church leaders. He's called together in my leaders to say, hey, this is what I want you to do. And we'll look at that warning in a moment. But as he warns them of what they're to do and the legacy he's to leave them, he says this, shepherd the church of God in verse 28, which he purchased with his own blood. Now, first reading, I just read over that. And then I kind of came back and went, shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Who is he talking about there? It's God. God purchased this church, this group of people that these leaders are to lead um, by serving. God purchased them with his blood. In in Jesus, God the Son died in their place. I wouldn't even give my kidney so that you could have an Apple computer. I just wouldn't. I I don't care. Whatever. Use your Dell. You know, Suffer. I don't mind. But God gave his life so that you and I could be saved. The blood of God, the Son, was spilt. I was trying to understand how big that is. It's not merely the death of one human individual. Although That would be huge. We think of those that have represented us at war, those that have died, that have laid down their lives so we could have the freedoms that we have. That is a massive, massive death. But this is not merely the death of one individual. It's the death of a human individual who was the living God. The one who said, let there be light, and light happened. The one who spoke and all things came into existence. The one who created all things, who sustains all things. The one that all things were made by and for and through died. In his letter to the Colossians, Paul says this, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn over all creation, for everything was created by him in heaven and on earth. The visible, the invisible, or the thrones, or dominions, or rulers, or authorities—all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and by him all things hold together. Do you get who this is? Could there be anyone more valuable in the universe? He is literally the one holding everything in this world together. You and I and everyone and everything on this planet and every other planet, if there are people there, exist for Him. Irrespective of what you think of Him, you and I are here for His glory, for His purpose. This one died for us. It's crazy. What, what, what else happens to us? What, what other good news could there be? What could be better news than this? What could be more valuable than the blood of God, the Son? He didn't have to die. He he chose to die. He chose to take our place, to take the penalty that you and I deserve for pretending to be God. For thinking that we can call the shots in our life. For for putting ourselves at the center of, of, of our universe. And thinking about ourselves rather than the God who made us and loves us. While we were still sinners, Paul says, Christ died. Can you even imagine what the blood of Jesus would be worth? Nothing can compare. Nothing can compete. Literally, any other thing that you come up with, he made and is sovereign over and is for him. Jesus died so that the penalty for your rebellion and mine could be poured out on him instead of us. For Paul, that so captured him. And put everything else in perspective that it changed the way he thought about what he does with his life and how he does it and what he does with his time and the way he thinks about relationships and all the good gifts God has given him. That reality, that the blood of God the Son paid for his salvation, meant Paul could see that no suffering was too painful, no sacrifice too costly because he'd seen the greatness of the cost that brought him freedom and recognized its infinite worth. Friends, let me ask you this morning, have you seen the greatness of the sacrifice Jesus made for you? Has that captured your life? Are you still trying to pay your own debt, thinking that you'll be okay, I'll just be a good person, I'll do my best, thinking it's possible to be good enough for God and kind of get through life that way? I want to plead with you today, my debt and yours is so large that it took The unimaginable death of God the Son to pay for. Do you see that? We can't pay it off. It took God the Son's death for that to be forgiven. I'm thinking over this this week. It really had two reactions in me. Number one, it helped me to realize afresh just how broken and sinful and rebellious I am. How far gone I am. So much so that to pay my debt requires God the Son to die. (laughs) I so often underestimate my sin. But secondly, it made me realize how much God has loved me. Because of nothing I've done while I was still a sinner, because I turned my back on Him, He still loved me and poured out His life for me and died my death so that my future might be secure. I find myself so often carried in the ebbs and flows of life. I'm sure you do too. Sometimes excited by what's going on and the blessings and the joys and the happinesses. And other times the frustrations and hardships, as comparatively small as they are to people in, in others around the world, they seem to capture my attention and I become just focused on my nose and forget what's in front of me in the Word of God. The reality that changed the universe. God the Son died. That image, that, that picture, that news of who Jesus is and what he has done. Captivated Paul so much that he could say, I consider my life of no value <laughs> compared to the blood of Jesus shed for me. What, what could I give? What could I offer that could in any way compare to what he has given me? So Paul, captured by this message and saying, look at what he's done, withholds nothing. And uses whatever he's been given to live for Jesus and to point others for Jesus. Now, I hear that and I'm like, wow, that's great for Paul. I kind of think that's good and he gets it. But that's hard. What gives him so much confidence? I feel like in life, yes, I'm convinced Jesus died and rose again. But so easily the things of this world pull me and suck me back into other ways of thinking. What gives Paul such confidence? We'll have a look at his confidence. That's point number four something like that. Verse 32, he says to these Ephesian leaders, and now I commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all who are sanctified. His confidence comes from the word of God. It comes from God himself. It's not like, yes, I think I'm a good enough evangelist or a good enough preacher or a faithful enough Christian that's give me confidence to keep going out. No, he wants to leave a legacy for the Ephesian churches and their leaders that they might stand firm in the same hope he has and that is in what God has said and done. It literally comes from the Word of God. That's what he's been proclaiming publicly and from house to house for three and a half years in Ephesus. This is what's emboldened him. God's Spirit through the Word to go, look, Jesus really lived and died. Verse 27, I did not avoid declaring to you the whole plan of God. That's what Paul's doing. Proclaiming to these leaders and the church in Ephesus, the whole plan of God. Now, if you think that my sermons at AV are long, you should check out what happens at the start of, of chapter 20. In verse 7, Paul was preaching to these people there, and it's come to midnight, and he's still going. He's still preaching. Like, imagine, we just go through to midnight, you settled in. A poor guy on the side, you tickies, he falls asleep on a window ledge, falls out, dies. See, preaching's an extreme sport. Coming to church is an extreme sport, literally. And even more so today because Paul actually healed him. He came back to life and everyone's like, wow, and he goes back and then preaches till dawn. I can't do that. Your lives are on the edge. You need to know that. So stay awake. Have some Barocca. But you get the importance for Paul of the whole counsel of God. It's what he gave his life to. It's what Luke records happened, and went on. To pointing people to the Word, to the God who makes himself known in the Word. It's being reminded about the realities of the blood-bought freedom Jesus gives. Fixing our eyes on his Word, on who Jesus is and what he's done, with its full background in the Old Testament. Understanding that He fulfills this sacrificial system, the coming together of the promises of God at the cross, looking forward to what God promised when He comes back again. All of those things in the Word of God is what builds us up. Did you see that? It is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all who are sanctified. When we lose our focus from God and His plans... When our eyes shift to the seemingly insurmountable hurdles in front of us, our sin and rebellion, the ebbs and flows of life, trials and troubles, joys and blessings, we need the Word of God to recalibrate our lives. We need one another to speak the Word of God, to keep recalibrating our lives. Paul here can leave these friends and church leaders in the knowledge that they are in God's hands because he has given them God's Word. They have God's Word. The same Word that you and I have today. There they see not only the incredible cost of the blood of the Son, but the infinite joy of the inheritance that Jesus' blood bought them. That's why Paul calls them sanctified, holy, washed clean by the blood of Jesus, because they've trusted in Him that His death was sufficient for them. Paul's confident because of the Word of God. But he also then lives out that confidence, and it changes the way... He acted in his whole time on earth. He didn't just kind of go, oh, I've got to do this and that, and it's as divorced, the teaching is divorced from his action. You notice that he lived out in his manner the gospel in the way he lived. Look at verse 18. You know, from the first day I set foot in Asia, how I was with you the whole time, serving the Lord with all humility, with tears, and during the trials that came to me through the plots of the Jews. Paul's manner of, of living amongst these leaders and these, these, these new baby Christians in Ephesus is, is a real sharing of life with people. It's a humility. He's not kind of walking around thinking, you know, he's the bee's knees. Look at me, I'm Paul. I'm the apostles to the Gentiles. Step back. I get so frustrated when I see Christian leaders act like they're superstars. I'm like, you idiots. I've just seen it in the US with Hillsong. A pastor that's hanging out with all the popular people and then goes to his head, and then goes and sleeps with multiple people, and now brings the gospel into disrepute? There's none of that. There should be none of that for our Christian leaders or for Christians. We had to point to Jesus. In 1 Corinthians, Paul says, the Greeks use wisdom, the Jews demand signs, but we preach Christ crucified. It's a stumbling block. Christ is the center, and he does it in his manner in a way that is serving Jesus first, humbly, through suffering, with tears, Look at verse 33. I've not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. You yourselves know that I worked with my own hands to support myself and those who are with me. So there's a total shift in what matters for Paul. With the blood of the Son when that's been given for you and you recognize the amazing cost. Silver or gold or clothing, wealth and status, external appearance, who cares? God the Son bled for me. <laughs> What else can I add to that? Paul is the model for all Christian leaders. As he models Christ, so Christian leaders ought to model him. And us as Christians ought to think through how we live that out as well. Not just pastors, but our connect group leaders, our kids' church leaders, our youth leaders. For all of us, we need to keep recognizing the cost of God the Son giving up His life. That means recognizing the cost of giving up our own lives doesn't even come close. So we serve in humility, loving others, walking alongside others. What cost would be too great for you to give up? Have you ever thought through that? What is stopping you from using the opportunities you've been given in your workplace, in your family, amongst your friends, with the skills and gifts God's given you, whatever way that looks like? What's stopping you from saying, actually... I want to serve God with my all. What what is something that you're like, no, but I can't give up this or that? Maybe ask God by His Spirit, through His Word today, to put His finger on those areas and help you to say, I give it to you to serve with you. Now, it doesn't mean we all should be pastors and church leaders like Paul, but it does mean we should use the time and gifts and talents we have to proclaim Jesus. But to the leaders Paul is talking to, he leaves these ones with a specific warning. Let's have a look at the warning. Verse 28 Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has appointed you as overseers, to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. You kind of get the, the gravity with which Paul says this to these Ephesian church leaders, don't you? You know, he's saying, I've come, I've preached the gospel. You know the gospel, I've been with you for this amount of time. Now look after them. Don't you go wandering off, flirting with all sorts of things in the world around you. The Holy Spirit has appointed you as overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. You get the gravity. There's a little side note that we need to look at here to understand something of church leadership. See, what do we call the people that run our church or that run our churches? Rowan, Andrew, Lachlan, you know, they've got names. But what is the name? Do we talk about pastors? Do we talk about elders, deacons, bishops, ministers? How do we think about that? What does the Bible say? This part of God's Word is a little side note. If you just kind of want a break, you can take a break now. It's kind of a little side note to look at. We'll come back to the main point in a second. But pastors, elders, bishops, ministers are all the same thing. In verse 17, Luke tells us that Paul summoned the elders of Ephesus... In the church, to come to him. He called them elders. That's, that's this Greek word that you get Presbyterian church from, elder-led church from. Um, so he summoned the elders. Uh, but in verse 28, we, we hear that they've been appointed overseers. That word overseers is the same word bishop. So he appointed them as bishops. And that's where we get the word Episcopalian, Episcopos is the word for for overseer. So the Anglican church thinks, oh, we need to have overseers. And so they kind of do church governance that way. And they generally call them ministers or servants, which is another one. But then he tells them to shepherd or pastor the flock. So which one is it? Like, Can the real church leadership name stand up? Hebrews says just leaders, you know, you got thinks about Hebrews 5, talks about leaders in the church. The New Testament uses many different words to talk about the office of leading those through the Word of God in the congregation of the church. Uh, elders has the idea of maturing older people, um, not maturing older people, but those who are more mature, um, maturing others. Uh, shepherd has this idea of walking alongside and training and keeping safe and stabbing off wolves, that sort of stuff. And then overseers is this word for kind of managing. It's kind of, you know, oversee your business, administrate business. It's that idea of being able to organize stuff to make it work. And really, leaders of churches are called not just to one of those, but to all three of those. That's really what's going on here. Uh, These leaders in the church in Ephesus, they are to oversee, organize. They are to pastor. They are to build up maturity. And they are to shepherd Because of the blood-bought Lamb of Christ, because of the church being bought with such a precious cost. And so as we at EV here talk about leaders, we talk about just generally leaders. We don't necessarily use the word pastor. We talk about some of your pastors. Um, But understand that those words all kind of talk on the same thing. All right. So as we look at that, what does he say to the leaders? Here's where we've got to go. Okay, let's get back on. Side note, central now. To these leaders in the the church in Ephesus, Paul is saying, be warned. You need to be warned for what's about to happen because of the wolves. Look at verse 29. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Men will rise up, even from your own number, and distort, distort the truth to lure the disciples into following them. Therefore, be on the alert. Remembering that night and day for three years, I never stopped warning each one of you with tears. It's the truth of God's word that builds up and distortions of the truth that tear down. Do you hear that? The truth matters. And the warning to the church leaders and to all those who are hearing this letter as it's, as it's shared round is this. Make sure you listen to the word of God. Test everything against the word of God, whether it be coming from your leader like me or other pastors here at EV or others who we're listening to online or whoever it is, test it against the word of God. Some of us, we kind of we like listening to some ideas that are out there and kind of, it's like flirting with the enemy. It's like going over, oh, isn't this a cute little like, cat patting this nice little kitty cat? It's so cute, got big paws. Like, yeah, it's a lion cub. It's going to grow up and eat you. And so that is what happens when we muck around with the truth. We always think wolves will look scary and vicious. They come in with the intent to devour and everyone will be like, yes, that's very obvious. This teaching, definitely wolf-like. Get lost. <laughs> no, no, no. They only look like wolves if you can't recognise what a wolf is, if you can't discern what is different. That's why we spend our time here at EV teaching in the Word of God, helping you to understand the Word of God so you might be equipped to go, ha, wolf, <laughs> not Puppy, baby kitten, lion thing, whatever it is. You know who the most vulnerable sheep are? They're the sheep who think that because the shepherd is a nice person, he must be teaching the truth. If you think all churches are really just okay, we've all got differences, it's alright. They, they do this little emphasis over here and that little emphasis over there. Then you're, you're likely to be taken off by anybody that's nice. Now, there are lots of great churches. I'm not saying that we're the only church. We're not. That would be a cult. <laughs> uh, but we must test everything against the Word of God. And we must be alert to that. So often we just take in what they say and be like, oh, yes, there's some good here and some good there. We need to be discerning. The ugly truth is that not everyone is on the same page. Now, just because they're different doesn't mean you immediately treat them as a wolf. Ah, oh, You know, you do things differently. You sing hymns, you're a wolf. Or, you seeing this, people. You're a wolf. No, we need to test everything against the Word of God. And that's why Paul strongly warns these church leaders, because that's part of the role of those in leadership, of leadership of our church as pastors, as connect group leaders, as kids' church teachers. Be discerning. Test against God's Word. The most vulnerable sheep are those that are the least well taught. Let me say it again. The most vulnerable sheep are those who are the least well-taught. Hebrews 5 talks about many of you should have been teachers, but you need milk all over again. Friends, let me encourage you, keep coming back to the Word of God. It is there that we see life. Given the cost of Jesus' death, we need to make sure we care for one another. You need to know that all the pastors here at EV, all of your connect leaders deeply care for you. I know for a fact that each of the pastors have lost sleep over you at some point. Concerned for how you're going, you keep trusting in Jesus. Mourning over sadness with you, sadness over sin. We care, we love you, we pray for you, and so we should. Because the Christian life, it's not clinical. It's a shared life. It's, it's It's a life that shares the struggles and the joys. We need to be in one another's lives, in connect groups, Meeting together regularly so we can make sure the Word of God keeps bearing fruit in our lives. But again, it's not just the pastors that are called to do that. It is our connect leaders, the differing team leaders that we have, the church, kids' church leaders, the youth leaders. These positions are not just jobs, not just positions of responsibility. They all involve leadership of real people for whom God bled and died. So number one, pray for your leaders. Pray for us. That we would keep Jesus central and being captivated by him. And if you are a leader, take that responsibility seriously. That doesn't mean we need to step in and rescue people all the time and overfunction for people and be like, oh, I can help you do this and that. But we need to be alongside with people, opening the word of God. And that costs. It costs time and energy and money and emotion. But Paul leads by example saying, I consider my life of no value to myself, given the cost of Jesus' blood given the sacrifice of what Jesus has done. I want to pour it out to love and lead you and to see the gospel keep going as I move back to Jerusalem and ideally to Rome. Well, against the pull of culture, against even the pull of friendships, and for the sake of the kingdom, Paul leaves. And what we see is that despite the goodbyes, despite the pain, here in in this letter and the letters of the New Testament, gospel partnership is what continues. Gospel partnership. It's this real and costly and shared relationship that Paul has with those that he's been around that I think we ought to aim for with one another. It's focused on Jesus. And you get this picture at the end of Acts 20, at the departure lounge of Miletus. Paul, probably on the beach or somewhere near the boat, saying goodbye as he and the Ephesian elders part for the last time until Jesus returns. Have a listen to what is going on here in verse 36. Verse 36. After Paul said this, he knelt down and prayed with all of them. There were many tears shed by everyone. They embraced Paul and kissed him, grieving most of all over his statement that they would never see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. Friends, this is gospel partnership. It costs. It's hard. It's real. And it has a focus on the growing kingdom of God and people remaining in that kingdom. And we ought to be people that are called to this gospel partnership with one another for the sake of the spread of the kingdom, using the skills and gifts and time and talents God's given us in whatever ways we can, focused on Jesus, letting the word of God keep shaping us as we remember the blood of Jesus poured out for us. As you consider who God has made you, as you look back over the sins you've committed, the forgiveness you've been offered, the immeasurable vastness of the sacrifice Jesus made, how will you give your life in gospel partnership? Will the sacrifices you make be for you and for me or for the kingdom? Will the choices we make to spend our time and money and energy and emotion be used to see people come to recognize the cost of their salvation and the joy of our inheritance in Jesus? Earlier last year, uh, I watched the movie Just Mercy. don't know if anyone's seen it. Uh, it, It's about a a man who's at Harvard Education who really goes and helps people on death row who've got no good legal support. Uh, And he really has this desire to help these people that are about to die, about to face the chair, to go, actually, we want to at least have a fair trial. And so he sees this great need of these people that really aren't represented well at all and goes, no, I want to spend my life doing it. And he spends all this time chasing after getting these people good uh, representation. He works all sorts of hours. He makes all sorts of sacrifices. And people are like, you got to slow down. He's like, I can't. Death is literally on the line. Friends, for Paul, as he recognizes that Jesus' blood was spilt so that we could be saved, he works with all the energy that he has. He doesn't go, ah, oh, I need to spend more time resting He's like, oh, I need to rest. Yes, it's a good gift. But I live not for me, but for God. I wonder if we would have that same attitude. We'd recognize how precious every person is to God. Every one of you are precious to Him. People paid for by the blood of Jesus. You're not an object or a resource, but you're people that God has bought by His blood. Knowing that makes us as a church and us as your leaders all the more concerned to push you, to fight for you, to to proclaim to you the whole counsel of God, to understand the hard bits of the Bible and the easy bits, to stay stuck in the Word of God for the next 10, 20, 30, 40 years. That's what we want because wolves will come in. So Paul stands back and says, recognize the blood of Jesus. And then ends by committing them to God. I commit you to God. And to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all who are sanctified. Let's pray. Father God, as we sit here today, as we reflect on the amazing cost of our salvation, that God the Son died so that we could be saved, we ask that you'd help us to be so captured by that, that we view our lives through that lens. We ask that you'd use who you've made us in our workplaces, in our families, amongst our friends, to speak of this gospel. We ask that by your Spirit you bring people to know you and love you and serve you. We pray you'd give us clarity to keep holding out the Word of God so that we'd recognize when people are bringing in distortions of the truth. Father, we are so thankful for your Spirit and your Word and ask that by them both you would send us out into your world for your glory to be used not for ourselves, But for you. Show us, Lord, where that needs to be. In your Son's name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon recording from Auckland EV. We hope you found it helpful. And if you'd like to find out more about Jesus or about church, we'd love to get in touch. So check out our website at aucklandev.co.nz for more details. Thanks for listening.